Hello friends and welcome to the podcast. We're in season one. We are going to look at a bunch of stories of people's prayer lives who have ushered in a move of God. A move of God in a nation and a city, but also a move of God in places like a school, a university and a workplace. As we contend for revival in our generation, these people have inspired my own prayer life and encouraged me to contend in prayer for revival in our cities and nations. It's my prayer that in the moment when perhaps we feel unmotivated to pray or we wonder if God is even listening, that the stories of these powerful yet very ordinary people will inspire us to continue to pray, to contend for encounters with Jesus and to walk in His power in our everyday lives. I'm your host Erin Planner and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome y'all and oh my goodness, this, today's episode, this lady is absolutely amazing. I did not know, I don't know if you knew, but I did not know that there was a revival that swept through India at the beginning of the 1900s. So basically when Wales um, was having revival, revival spread sort of across the world at that time, beginning of the 1900s and went as far as Japan and India. I had no idea. I was messaging back and forth with a friend of mine who's a missionary in Japan at the moment. And um, she was like, yeah, I didn't know. So we've, I've watched her like discover some of the things to do with Christianity in Japan. And we were just digging into, um, yeah, what actually happened in Japan around the beginning of the 1900s with this revival that swept the earth. But it's not Japan that we're going to dive into today. It's actually India. And the woman that we're going to talk about today, her name is Pandita, which is a title that was given to her because of how many crazy, amazing things that she did for social reform. But Pandita Ramabai Saravati, that is my best best pronunciation. (laughs) And for all my Indian friends, please feel free to correct it. Um, But Ramabai was one of India's most prominent uh, female, actually, social reformers and educators. And a lot of this came from um, her sense of justice from uh, different places, including the Bible. She played a really significant role in pioneering the Pentecostal movement in India, which is so cool to learn more about. Uh, she was a social activist, a Bible translator, an author, and she, her father was actually, um, a translator of sorts. He would, um, yeah, write and translate documents. And so, you know, beginning of the uh, sort of middle of the 1800s, it was not very common for um, women in India to be trained how to read and write. And he, um, because that was sort of his bread and butter and his passion, he actually trained Ramabai to uh, read and write uh, in Sanskrit. And that was really unusual. And so basically he set her up in a very um, beautiful way to be used, not just in India, but she traveled a lot um, as an educator and as uh, speaking on behalf of women, women's rights and children's rights to the UK and the US. And she spent some time in a college in England and this is and this is where she actually met Jesus. She joined the local church of England and she said that she also was traveling a lot in the slums um, in England at that time, in London at that time. There was actually a lot of poverty in London around that time. And she said it was traveling in the slums of London that she actually learned to distinguish between what she calls the institutional church and what she termed as religion of Jesus. So I feel like she's saying here what she distinguished between church ritual and you know, the practices and actually presence and Jesus, which is so amazing, which this is like the end of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s. And she's already saying that there's a distinction that she can make between Jesus and 
like institutional church. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. So she returned back to India in from her time in the UK and abroad in 1889. And even that is amazing because, y'all, she's not flying. She's taken ships. Um, she's having to go on long, month-long ship journeys to get from one country to the other. So she returns back to India in 1889. Uh, following her husband's death, she was only 23 when he passed away, which is so young. She opened a school for child widows in Pune, which I've actually been to. So it's, it, I don't know what it's like now, like was like then, but quite an industrial place in Pune. Um, and there she basically set up this mission or home for widows um, and also child orphans, all female, a place where they could come and they could, um, you know, get off the streets and receive a lot of uh, love and education. I'll talk about that in a second. So the place was called uh, Mukati Mission. She really was a true apostolic mother because her social ministries really sheltered, educated and fed women and children. But they also taught them the Bible and she nurtured a generation of new Christians within this Mukati mission. She also raised up and equipped and sent out, quite literally, um, she had at one time 30 evangelists that she'd sent out, women evangelists that had come from, you know, orphans and widows. So like, I love it. So Jesus-like. It's the, the least in society's eyes that she raised up uh, as evangelists and sent them out to neighboring villages. And Ramabai realized that some things could only change though through prayer. So she was a social activist, but she actually realized that as much as she could do for social reform, going and speaking to very large government organizations, especially in the UK, but also in the US, she came back and she realized that some things she was only going to see change in India through prayer. And she used her significant influence to encourage the women um, that were in the Mukati uh, mission to pray for spiritual and social reforms in India. It's like, wow, what a revelation. You know, I think sometimes we have those two things. It's like, oh, either you can pray about it or you can go out and do social reform. And she was as heavily involved in social reform um, and justice as she was in her prayer life and creating um, communities, communities of prayer to storm heaven. So as I was saying in the intro, in 1904, basically the Welsh revival started to break out and Ramabai actually received word that this was happening in Wales. And so her hunger for the outpouring of the spirit intensified uh, greatly. She started prayer circles in the Mukati mission of just 10 girls each and she started to urge them to pray for salvation of all nominal Christians in India. Wow. And also across the world. So she didn't just have a local vision but also had a global vision. She didn't start with like, you know, the 10 most spiritual people in India or like, you know, the reverends and there would have been a lot of colonialism happening there at the time. There would have been a lot of um yeah, Westerners from the UK that were there doing different endeavors in the name of Christ. She didn't start with gathering them. She literally took the people that God had given her, which were these orphans and widows, and she set them up and encouraged them to pray 
in these prayer circles, not just for India, but also for the world. I love that. At first, there was basically 70 in her prayer circles. So she had about 70 or 70 people involved. She sent out a call for other prayer circles to be formed among friends and supporters of Mukadi Mission and of her ministry, giving each of them a list of 10 unsaved girls or women to pray for. I love that. She was so intentional with what they were praying for. They were writing it down, making it clear, praying specifically. I love that. Uh, Within six months, it says that there was 550 at Mukati who were meeting twice a day to pray for revival. Hallelujah. So she literally went from uh, 70 to 550 within six months. I think the Lord was definitely breathing on that. Um, In June of 1905, 10 months actually before the Azusa Street Revival broke out, one of the matrons of the dormitory where the girls were sleeping inside the Makati Mission um, said that she came across a bunch of girls who at night were weeping, praying and confessing sin. And then one girl testifies that she had been startled awake from her sleep by the sensation of being bathed in holy fire. So something was starting to really break out in the Mukati mission between when the Welsh revival started and before the Azusa Street revival. It's so cool. It's so cool that God finds these like almost hidden places. He started with like these orphans and these widows and he just starts to break out in this place. So good. Um, and then according to Ramabai, the girls at the orphanage in Makati prayed each day for more than 29,000 individuals by name. Wow. Uh, they prayed, among other things, for them to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and to become true and faithful Christian witnesses. I just love how intentional they are. Like they wrote down 29,000 names. That's amazing. I have a list of names of people that I'm um, praying for their salvation for, some for many years. I have many family members in that bucket um, and friends. And I think there is something so special about that, so intentional. I think it values them. I think it also is Um, encouraging to us who are praying to be able to literally tick those names off one by one as the Lord starts to move in their life. So if you don't have a list of like individuals that need saving, um, write them down. I mean, we all know people who we would love to encounter the love of Jesus in our lives. Write them down and um, stick them on your window. So like every time or your mirror, so every time you're cleaning your teeth, you just go through them. It's, It's easy. Stick them on the dash of your car. I don't know, put them in places where you are every day. I don't know if you're a mum, put them where you change your, when you change baby so that every time you're changing a nappy, you're just like, Lord, I just lift these five people up to you, lift Jack, Jill, John, whoever they are up to you. Um, it doesn't have to be, you know, an hour of like heavy, crazy intercession. It's like if every time you change a nappy, you're praying for those people, it's, it's just lifting them up to heaven again. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> so on June 29 in 1905, the spirit fell upon a large group of girls with weeping, confession of sin and prayers for empowerment. This was the marker of the move of God here. Manifestations recorded include several being slain in the spirit and experiencing a burning sensation as the Holy Spirit moved through them. The next day, on the 30th of June, Ramabai taught from John 8, 
and the Spirit of God came in power, it says. The women and girls all began to weep and confess sin. I love that repentance is part of the move and the mark. Um, many were stricken down under conviction of sin while repent, uh, well, attending to their daily studies and household duties. So it was like literally as they were just going about their business, um, the Lord started to move amongst their midst just because of the intercession of these widows and orphans. It's so amazing. God doesn't see them as we see people. You know, these these ones that society would have really outcast and and seen as with little social value, the Lord valued greatly and heard their prayers and moved in great measure. All right. I have not to digress. I just love this story so much. Lessons were suspended and the women gave themselves continually to prayer. During these days of heart-searching repentance, many girls had visions of, of the body of sin within themselves and they testified that the Holy Spirit came into them with holy burning, which they called a baptism of fire and was almost unbearable. Wow. Young Christians were counted Young Christians that were there in the Mukati mission counted it a rare privilege to spend many, many successive hours in inter- intercessory prayer for strangers never seen or known. For me, that actually says revival, where our hearts are so captivated by the Lord, where we are so understanding the privilege that it is to spend hours in prayer with our Lord, with our Lord, just lifting up what is on his heart to him and to pray for people that we've never seen or know. I feel like, yeah, when our hearts burn for him, this is just a natural reaction of that, a natural byproduct of that. Other reporters of these revival instances stated that a great light was given to them. When delivered, they jumped up and down for joy for hours without fatigue. Hallelujah. They cried out with the burning that came into them and upon them. And while the fire of God burned, the members of the body, sorry, while, while, oh, hallelujah, while the fire of God burned the members of the body of sin, pride, anger, love of the world, selfishness, uncleanliness, etc., it says that they, they never ate or slept until the victory was won. And then the joy was so great that for two or three days after receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they did not care for food. Wow. In 1906, it says that participants of this revival also started receiving the gift of speaking in tongues. I think that's amazing because I feel like in moments where the Lord comes and his glory just takes over, it's like time just collapses. And you don't know if you've been there for one minute, one hour One day, it's like you just get swept up in the presence of God, which I think is exactly how heaven will feel. Part of it is like time and space are just irrelevant. And I love that even even their body was like just so overcome by the glory of God that there was no hunger. Jesus was just fulfilling all, all of, satiating all of their needs, all of their even natural flesh needs. It was just they were so full of God and so full of his glory that all of those things seemed to ex- seem to just disappear and fade away. Oh, so good. News about this holy fire, strange enough, at the Mukadi mission uh, started to spread and along with revivals that were happening simultaneously around the world, many missionaries uh, came personally to this small city to visit the Mukadi mission in response to the news of the outbreak of the Holy Spirit amongst the students. 
Uh, two little girls, oh, this wrecks me. Two little girls had the spirit uh, of prayer poured onto them in such torrents that they continued to pray for hours. Prayer meetings would last 15 to 17 hours, just continual praise and prayer. And it said prayer meetings in uh, prayer in large meetings was like being under a rolling thunder. Hundreds would pray audibly together. Sometimes after 10 or 20 minutes, this would like die and fade away only to hear voices rise again and it would rise and increase in intensity. And on other occasions, it goes on for hours. So it was like, I don't know if you've ever been in prayer rooms, but I've been in prayer rooms where it's like the prayer just rides this wave with the Holy Spirit and like it gets intense. And then it's like, oh, it feels like we break through in something in intercession and it just sort of like the stillness of God comes over the prayer room. And then it then you just hear a little stirring again. One person just starts in tongues and you're like, oh yeah, here we go again. It's like this beautiful roar and then a fading away into the stillness of glory and then back into a roar. And I feel like that's what they're just describing there. It says the evangelist G.H. Lang of the Christian Brethren during his visit to Makati said this about that type of prayer meeting. It was a new experience to hear a thousand a thousand women and girls praying aloud at the one time. The sound rose and fell like the roar of the sea or the wind in a forest. Whew, hallelujah. But what uh, but what to a West uh, what to a Westerner might seem like mere confusion did not strike me as so. For I had heard in Egypt a whole school of boys something similar in their prayer meeting. The mind of each was on his own uh, recitations undisturbed by the noise around him. Similarly, each woman and girl was oblivious to the rest and yet praying in unison. Hallelujah. The revival affected the Anglicans, the Baptists, the Lutherans, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, and the Missionary Alliance, the London Missionary Society, and the Young Men and Women's Christian Associations, and more. McCarty Mission went on to help in a social justice realm, more than 100,000 girls and women. Revival, revival, hallelujah. I love that this was spread out. It didn't matter what denomination was on the door. Anyone who had their heart just crying out to Jesus was being affected by this and that it wasn't just a great prayer meeting or as Pastor Shree would say, a tickle me Elmo moment, but that it was actually um, brought social reform as well to the most needy in that society and the most probably those with very little social uh, influence and power. Oh my goodness, so much to love about this. So I just wrote down some of the three or four things that I absolutely uh, adored. I loved that uh, she had a she had such a vision of what God wanted to see done in her city and in her nation, and she both married deep intercession with action. You know, Heidi Baker always says that love love has to be a doing thing. Love has to have action. And I love that sometimes, you know, we see those two things differently. It's like it's love or it's action or it's action and it's love. And I think in uh, her life, you can just see those things both at the highest of levels. Ramabai really, I think, epitomizes that. It's like 
you don't have to be stuck in your prayer closet all day. You can pray for hours and then you can go out and be Jesus to people uh, in a very practical way and share his love in that way. And those two things married together, I truly believe, uh, are super powerful, are super powerful. Um, what else? She knew how to make take a vision and she knew how to set herself to prayer. Um, I think, yeah, unlike unlike many others. I love that she sent, set into action those around her. You don't need a massive platform. You do not need, you know, um, huge influence in leadership. She just literally took the people that she was living with and doing life with and gave them a vision and shared God's heart and set them to prayer. Um, I also think that, you know, this is not a formula of how to pray uh, not a formula of how God moves. He does it in so many different ways. So I love this was like, we're going to set up prayer circles. We're going to start praying for ourselves, for our nation and for the nations of the world. Um, I think David's song of Thanksgiving, when the ark is finally placed in the tent in 1 Chronicles 16, 11 to 13, says, seek the Lord and his strength, seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered, O offspring of Israel, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles, and seek his presence continually. And it is my prayer for anyone and everyone listening to this podcast that the stories that we talk about and the testimony that I shared today will just encourage you to seek his presence continually and to remember the wondrous works that he has done. And so, Lord, I just pray for everyone listening to this podcast today that the life of uh, this lover of you, Jesus, this social reformist, this woman that would seem to have had not a lot of agency in her life. I pray, God, that the testimony of Ramabai's life would encourage us, God, to know that wherever we are and whatever we are doing, that we can partner with your heart to bring revival to the cities that we live in and the nations that you have born, birthed us into, God. I pray, Lord, that as we seek your presence continually, that you, we would find our strength in you and that we would know that we are your chosen ones for such a time as this. I pray this in your powerful name, Jesus, a name that <laughs> sees the earth shake, a name that sees salvation break out over cities and nations, a name that literally sees transformation that we can only dream about we pray this in your powerful name jesus amen amen 